Welcome twos and threes to another podcast. Uh, we have the pleasure and privilege today of having Mr. Simeon Hawkins, uh, a master of, now you, you want to please correct me on this, uh, Simeon, your master's thesis is in uh, St. Paul's and its role in, uh, you could say, early church history in New Zealand. Yeah, so St. Paul's Church in Auckland, yeah. Mm. Um, we are really looking forward to this guy. Uh, he's a colleague. He's a really likable guy, um, kind of like, you know, very humbly super intelligent, you know, just putting that out there. I'm just going to very much start with actually affirming you, Simeon, more of it to come. Thanks, Jared. <laughs> um, yeah, he's definitely a brain on things theology. It was also my pleasure to actually share some of our time, Caleb as well, share some of our time at Labour College with our Simeon at the same time we were actually doing our time there. But yes, all this and more to actually detail a little bit of who he is and why we think you as an audience are going to benefit from what he has to say uh, after we've actually shared our intro. Um, so if you could start us off, Caleb, take us away. Cool. Hey all. Uh, Two or Three Gathered is a series of conversations with Christian brothers and sisters, considering their efforts and contributions to the kingdom vocationally, their stories and testimonies of God's sovereignty and grace and an opportunity to tackle the relevant issues the church faces in the 21st century. In this, we seek to equip the saints by networking within the body, starting the conversation around often taboo subjects and seeking to develop unity across Christian denominations and traditions by starting conversation on worthy topics. We want to educate the wider body of Christ by asking these experts and people of wisdom across multiple fields the hot-button questions and sophisticated questions that we believe there are answers for in Christ's church, but that there, are not necess- that there is not necessarily access to. And it is our heart that Christ himself would be in our midst as we converse about these things we believe he mm-hmm. himself is very interested in. Cool. Nice. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> yeah, well, welcome. Um, pleasure to Thank have you. you on, Simeon. Thank you. Yeah, so um, I guess we'll start off um, just by uh, getting you to just tell us a little bit about yourself and um, your, I guess, family history, home, where you're from, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Okay, thanks. Well, guys, thank you uh, very much for inviting me um, on your podcast. I appreciate that. It's um, a bit of an honor to be here, um, especially since your introduction said that you talk to people of wisdom and, and you know, influence and things. I wouldn't, so it's, it's nice to be considered in that category. So thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I knew these gents when I went to Laidlaw College, which was um, a little while ago now, uh, 2011, I graduated. Um, but prior to that, I was born in England I was raised in Kent, down in the southeast, and I lived there pretty much from age five to about age 28. Uh, And that was kind of my world, that church, that town, a little town of Folkestone right there on the coast, uh, overlooking the channel and France. And um, And that's I did school there and all those things. And then um, I got four brothers and sisters. Mm. My parents divorced when I was nine, and that was quite... um, impacting for me I guess Uh, I was fortunate in that my uncle was a very uh, prominent uh, person in my life he was also the youth leader of our church and so he um, wasn't you know he he took on that kind of father figure in terms of a a solid strong male role model in my life 
um, and was very influential then in how I shaped and navigated faith. Um, I became very involved in the youth ministry mm. because of uh, largely because of that, I suppose. Um, uh, the church was uh, the absolute backbone of my social calendar, my understanding. I mean, my main friends, I had friends at school, but my real friends were at church. You know, that was how I, how I, yeah, measured the rhythm of life, I suppose. Um, mm -hmm. And then when I was, uh, so I, I went to school, then I went to Bible school um, over there. And uh, then I fell in love with a girl called Holly and uh, she was moving to London. And so I decided, well, we can't get married straight away. So I will um, do a degree as well, because she was doing a degree. And so we both, we, we dated and studied long distance for um, a few years. Uh, and I did my degree in history. That's where that came from. So, um, so just interject yeah. at that point. Uh, so yeah, church, sure. church, it sounds like gave you a real sense of belonging in a sense, uh, a place to stand, as it were, I guess putting in some of the uh, New Zealand vernacular, I guess you could mm. put it. Um, did you meet um, Holly within your church network? You mentioned it was Life Church. I don't imagine that's the same Life Churches as New Zealand, is it? Yeah, no, it's not. It's um, so it was a Life Church in the UK. It's not affiliated at all with um, any other kind of like wider denomination. Right. Um, and yeah, so I met Holly at the church. She, uh, her family, the church had a Bible school connected with it, and also a a, a school. And she came um, because uh, some of her siblings were going to start going to the school and her mum was involved in Christian education. And so, um, yeah, they came to be involved in that. And yeah, so we got together that way. Mm. It wasn't, you know, the Holy Spirit gave you a word. It's like, I'm to marry you. Nothing like that. <laughs> no, no, it didn't, didn't get that weird. No, didn't married, <laughs> married at the altar call kind of thing. No, no, nothing like that. No. Um, yeah, so uh, so we we got married pretty much as soon as we finished our degrees, okay. uh, and uh, I then did my teacher training after that, so that I could teach in the school that was connected with the church, mm. and um, and then I taught there for a couple of years, and it's at around that point that we you know we've married for three years, and we were asking those questions, you know, do we get a mortgage, do we have kids, and all that kind of thing, but mm -hmm. I'd always lived in the same town, always had the same church, the same friends, the same kind of everything. Um, Everyone else in my family had moved by that point. Uh, two of my brothers were living in New Zealand and, you know, telling us how awesome it was and stuff. And so we thought, well, before we really set up life, let's really, let's go have an adventure. Let's go live in New Zealand for a couple of years and see, yeah, have, see what's out there. Um, and we did. And within, yeah, within a few months of being here, we just absolutely loved it. Didn't want to go back. Um, and then, but I, I really had this sense that I needed to go back to support the school and support the church and everything else. Um, I'd been become quite a, a key person within the school within those two years. It was a very small school. Um, and then that school closed mm. while we were in New Zealand. And suddenly it felt like all my duties and requirements to return had now gone. And so we were actually free to really make our own choice of what we wanted to do and where. And we both wanted to stay here. And mm. that was, um, yeah, we've been here now for 10 years. Mm. Um, got two children here now. Uh, Asher is six and liana is three and a half and yeah it's good life is really good loving new zealand love that yeah. you you mentioned uh a little bit about say the nature of the school um being attached to the church i imagine you know church schools they're a little bit different in the uk from how they are in new zealand yeah they are very much so um a big one is that new zealand education basically they fund the child 
uh, whereas in New Zealand, in England, sorry, um, anything that's not national, completely secular national curriculum has to be privately funded completely. Mm -hmm. So it means that Christian schools, if you want your child to have a Christian education, you have to pay for it completely yourself, mm -hmm. which means that Christian schools are very small. Um, they're often heavily subsidized by trusts or churches or, you know, people that want to support those things. Um, and they also tend to rely less on properly qualified trained teachers and more on people that are willing to volunteer to help to do whatever. So when I was involved in that school, for example, um, I was leaving a secular workplace um, to teach there. And yeah, I <clears throat> was offered less than half of my normal salary to do so because they can't kind of finance it that way. And so also it means because you have less qualified teachers, you then usually have um, very prescriptive curriculum. So things like ACE uh, would be a, an example, which is mm -hmm. the, the curriculum the school used here. And um, each subject is kind of, it's largely self-taught. And so you, you kind of monitor more as a teacher rather than like have a classroom of students. Mm -hmm. And then when I did teach classrooms of students, I would have like kids from year seven through to year nine in the same class kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's, it's just a very, very different way of doing education mm -hmm. because people were like, they want to, choose the christian route as opposed to the the state route yeah so it is very different right okay um and so there's there was something eventually because i'm curious about you and holly making the decision to move out here um mm. you mentioned in our correspondence of having a kind of a, an acute sense of actually the experience of being in the unknown will uh stretch you and that god was actually uh he would be able to work things in your life that he couldn't if you stayed in the same town of church. I wonder if yes. that was like a big part of your decision moving over there. Also the fact that you mentioned that your father was actually a Kiwi and so you're part yep. Kiwi yourself. Uh, yeah, yeah, sort of. My dad um, is predominantly English. He was just born mm. in Wellington and he lived here until he was 14. Uh, so he, so we all got citizenship through that. Right. Um, so that for, it was more of an open door and my two brothers were here. Mm -hmm. uh, and if something would have developed relationally uh, with my dad, who was very much estranged from us as kids, mm. um, then that would have been a bonus. But it wasn't a motive really for moving. I see. Uh, I did definitely have that sense that God would be able to do something in my life that he couldn't do if I stayed where I always had been. Mm. Uh, but again, it would be wrong for me to say I felt the call of God or that that was my primary motive. If I'm honest, I just kind of reached a place in life where I'd always lived in the same place. Mm. I had dual citizenship. I didn't have anything tying me down to where we lived. Um, and I kind of thought, well, you know, I'm a qualified teacher with experience. I've got a British and a New Zealand passport. Um, and if I, uh, you know, being a teacher could open so many doors around the world. Mm. Uh, where would I want to live? If I had mm. the whole globe, mm. I could choose where I want to live. Mm. Where would I choose? And mm. I thought, I don't know, but I do know it wouldn't be here. So I don't want to be here. I want to go explore and find out, you know, where that might be. Mm. And so I think we were kind of spurred by this sense of adventure um, and to explore, to see what was out there and knowing that in that process, God would be able to do something that he couldn't do. But what that would be or what it would look like, um, I didn't know. But mm. if I had to put a term to it, it would be that it would be the making of me mm. in some sense. Mm. So well, in that stage of life, at least. No, I love that. Like, um, I think, you know, you... Uh, and I would agree, uh, Caleb also, Simeon, probably in more of an objective pneumatology around this stuff, like, you know, not to say that God doesn't speak, you know, to people and to individuals, but it's not nearly as common that uh, is, you know, 
every typical Pentecostal church may make out that it is, right? And yeah. then actually in yeah. a more objective pneumatology would actually suggest that, well, the God's sovereignty and providence in your life was marked by the fact that those things were already present in your life. You had yeah. dual citizenship, you had these this opportunity. Oh, that's probably an indicator of sometimes God's just wanting us to make a decision. <laughs> Right, not necessarily mm-hmm. yeah. you know, wait for the sign in the sky. Sometimes it's actually yeah, totally. Be a no, I'm a big believer. Mm. Yeah, I think God. I think if you are living in line with what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to reflect the nature and the character of God, um, then wherever you go, whatever you do in any industry, um, you're going to reflect that nature, that heartbeat of the Father. And mm. um, whether that means we would have stayed in England or come to New Zealand or whatever, I I don't think that would matter. But I think I've come to that place because I left the very kind of Pentecostal, black and white mm. um, kind of upbringing and, and understanding of religion that I'd always had to that point. Um, coming to New Zealand and broadening your experiences, your horizons and going through laid law um, and then subsequently working at St. Paul's Church. All those things massively reshaped my faith and understanding. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it was a very formative crunch time for me, I guess. Um, and I've emerged, I think, the richer for it. Uh, but I don't imagine that process could have happened had I stayed where I had been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not in the same way. Mm. Yeah, because um, this leads a little bit on to what we want to talk about um, with regards to your, <clears throat> your field of expertise now. Um, you've you know, done this... Uh, Oh, I forget the exact acronym, a PGSE, is that right? To actually teach a years oh. 11 to 18? Yeah. Is that PGCE? Is that... Yeah. PGCE, thank you. Yeah, Professional um, Graduate Certificate of Education. Ah, I see. Okay, thank you for bringing them down the acronym. That's right. <laughs> um, and uh, so you came to New Zealand, and part of that actually moving is that you actually uh, did this MA in history at the University of Auckland, but then you actually had this desire, well, if I'm going to do study church history, um, that better to actually be taught by people who love Jesus rather than actually maybe people who have the the letters by their name and all the academic accolades that actually recommend the subject, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, So, I mean, I loved church and my faith was the the center point of my life uh, and always has been. Um, and I loved history and my, my bachelor's was in history and I was a history teacher. So I thought, you know, I'd love to combine these two and really study the history of the church and not just, you know, you know, secular history. Um, but when I went to the university, I was told that church history is a theological subject. It's not a historical subject. <laughs> and so I couldn't study it. Even though I had bachelor's in history, they wouldn't let me. So um, they said you have to do uh, at least a graduate diploma in theology before you would even qualify to do anything in church history. So I thought, okay, so my plans from doing MA in history switched to doing grad dip in theology for that reason. Um, And then I thought, well, if I'm doing a grad dip in theology, I would rather do that at Laidlaw and be taught by Christians and people that really have a a heart faith for what they're teaching rather than um, just, you know, University of Auckland professors who may or may not have a faith, but would kind of approach it, I assumed anyway, from a rather dusty perspective. And that's probably very judgmental. Um, I've subsequently met a couple of those people and they wouldn't necessarily be dusty professors, but such was my understanding. Uh, And so I thought, well, I would rather go to lay law. And I did. And I'm very thankful that I did. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I don't know what it would have been like had I gone to Auckland Journey, but um, Mm -hmm. I'm thankful for my time at lay law. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
cool well it seems like you've you've done quite quite a lot in um you know in, in both new zealand and in the uk um you've definitely had a lot of accomplishments what what are some that you are personally proud of having done and participated in and what what are some of those that you're currently working on yeah thanks um i am i'm proud that i'm proud of my family i think first and foremost my family um every parent is biased obviously but i've got two brilliant kids um i'm super proud of my wife she has uh, you know has been always willing to go to the other end of the earth literally um to leave family and friends and community you know um and always been willing to share in the adventure she's been willing to put up with uh, 10 years of study and tertiary education you know, throughout marriage and dating and and all these things and that always puts pressure on relationships it puts pressure on finances and all these things so she's just she's brilliant she's brilliant i'm super proud of her I'm, I'm, and i am i am proud of my education and i don't mean that in a in an arrogant way um but i'm not from a town or family or social group that would normally kind of hold higher education in, in great esteem or something to really kind of pursue it was always about either just you succumb to the the reality around you and get a job locally and just kind of do life with whoever uh, wherever or you um you get into business and you kind of pursue business uh, and so academics hasn't really been a thing for most people in my original circles um so i'm thankful for that and i think it's taken me to really good places and i think it's shaped me in a really good way um in partnership with the work that god's been doing through that process yeah and i also own a house in auckland which is um no mean feat especially in 2021 so i'm pretty stoked about that too yeah so you're one of those filthy one percenters <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so hey, no, we, yeah, we, we, we won't hold that against you thank oh, you no. caleb yeah you and me both, Simi, and I guess Caleb hates us both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, we came to New Zealand with literally like like nothing, just suitcases of clothes. My brother's up in Whangarei, and you know, within a month we'd moved down to Auckland and we're flatting with some friends of his. And you know, ten years later, we've got two kids in a house and you know, good jobs, nice. and we're just we're really happy. God has blessed us, man, big time. Yeah. So very thankful. Cool. Uh, can awesome. I jump in just for a second, Caleb? Yeah, sure. Um, it's something I am thinking just for the sake of our listeners as well. Um, I wonder if just, uh, before Caleb asks the next question, um, if you could just connect the dots for us, uh, Simeon, mm, totally Looking from your time where you have obviously studied, um, you know, did your masters with at Laidlaw with an at Laidlaw, um, and you ended up actually being at St. Paul's probably there's a bit of overlap between that to actually yep. where you're now this year, 10 to 13 biblical studies teacher at Kingsway um yeah where we obviously have um come to know each other again and come to work alongside each other different capacities yeah. different schools once more but yeah just if you could actually you know briefly talk to actually how you got from here to there if that makes sense mm, totally so um <clears throat> so the answer is in a slight clarification there Jared um so I did a graduate diploma in theology at Laidlaw yes. uh, and I did that in one year in 2011 uh, and then, and and that was actually a real time of deconstruction of my faith, and real challenge. And and at the end of that, I was expecting to get back into teaching and education, uh, but instead, it seemed that God wanted me to go to St Paul's Church in the city, and that's where I got a job. And I was the youth leader there with my wife for six and a half years. Mm. 
and that six and a half years was a really crucial time of um, healing would be the wrong word, but reconstruction um, and yeah, uh, sharpening my the new concepts and new approaches to faith that had been introduced but hadn't been outworked. Mm. Um, and being because I was surrounded by people that were very well informed, were much further down this process, you know, you know, other doctors and educated people, and they were able to have conversations with me to help me just kind of understand things. And if I was going to teach on a subject, you know, I could shoulder tap my vicar and say, oh, hey, we're going to talk about baptism and infant baptism and all these other things. And he could give me a couple of key texts and some good synopsis of good theological thinking around these things. And again, it just helped me reframe some things that I had deconstructed, but hadn't yet reshaped mm-hmm. in, in my new understanding. And so that was great, a great place to kind of work all of these things out. Me as a person and was was growing and developing too along alongside that too. So, uh, and then it was right from the beginning, really, of starting at St Paul's. Um, I was loving that it was a historical building. Clearly, it had this really rich history. There are these stained glass windows and these memorials and, and all these things. And I was asking questions to people. You know, well, where is that from? And what is that about? And what, why did we have this? And nobody seemed to know the answers. There were little mm. clues here and there. Or I'll talk to this old lady or talk to that old person. They might know. And you know, there's this mm. old pamphlet from the 1970s that has some bits in it. And I, and and as I started to piece things together and read the bit of history that did exist, it was obvious that St Paul's was a really significant church for this yeah. for Auckland and for New Zealand and yet it didn't have a compiled history like a proper compiled history there was a lot of um yeah like bits and pieces here and there but nothing that was kind of compiled and, and collected properly mm. there was a pamphlet was the best the best thing that was done um and so I thought well I'd love to find out that story you know and mm. and and talk about it and so as I but as I started to dig deeper and I started to research and I started to look at the material I realized it was massive and I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it properly. I want to get it accredited. Mm. Um, so it's not just a side project. And so that's when I approached Auckland University and posed it as a thesis only master's um, subject. And they accepted that. And so then the research I had done to date and then another uh, three, just under three or two, two years proper uh, part time on top. Um, I got the research for it all done and written up. So yeah, so that's where it came from. It was a, a love of the building and history and connecting the dots. Um, but actually during my studies, I actually finished up at St. Paul's Church and, and relocated to the coast and then finished up my master's when I was there. Ooh. Yeah, so that's how, we, that's how we ended up with that. <laughs> awesome. I, I really like that, um, that you spoke to uh, deconstructing your faith, but then reconstructing it. Um, that's something that Jared and I have spoken about in previous casts about the importance of that because a lot of people just naturally can't uh, when when they come across certain questions especially in a theological institution yeah they they can't avoid uh deconstructing parts of their faith uh, yeah if they're facing these asking these questions with integrity at least mm. yeah um but yeah i th- i think there there needs to be a bit more of a um, focus on that reconstruction of the faith. Mm. Well, yes, yeah. you know, I, I commend you for that. Thanks. Yeah, like I, I've heard it said, like, you know, loosely about, you know, Bible colleges in general, you know, uh, young Christians, not necessarily young people, they typically go to a, a, you know, a Bible college to actually get answers to questions, but they leave away, going away with more questions than answers. Yeah. 
yeah. can be the experience for some people, right? Yeah, and that was certainly my experience, but I think it was a really good one. Mm. Um, I went into laid law essentially look because I, I didn't get teaching work as soon as we moved to New Zealand. Mm. And I thought, well, I'd rather than wait another year and just doing a whatever job, I'll improve my CV. I'll go, I'll study something else. As I said, I ended up at laid law, but it was largely so that I would understand scripture better and learn some Bible better. Um, I, as far as I was concerned, I understood Christianity. I had it all sewn up. I was teaching mm. apologetics. I was teaching in a Christian school. I had lived and breathed the faith my whole life. And so, mm. um, yeah, and I'd been involved in, in youth leading ministry and things like that. So for me, I thought I, I got it. I thought I knew all the answers. You know, I could tell you what the answers were. So to, um, yeah, uh, to then kind of find that actually all my answers were actually just one understanding or one perspective and that actually there was a whole raft of other understandings and perspectives that had never been talked to me about. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, and, and actually that's where the, the real love for church history came from, I think, because um, I know, I remember, I remember feeling robbed, uh, if I'm honest, gents, mm -hmm. like I was, by this point, I was um, 20, I don't even know, but I was, I'm in my late twenties, I'm 20, 28 or whatever it is. And I'm like, how, how have I never heard of, you know, Athanasius and, you know, ecumenical councils and how have I never heard of these things? You know, oh, sure. Christians being thrown to the lions, but I'd never heard the big sweeping story of Christ of church history or any of these mm -hmm. things. And I just felt like, how could I have been a Christian so long? And these things have never been talked about, you know, yeah. why have we never mm -hmm. talked about models of salvation? Why have we never talked about, you know, good contextual understanding or, or even biblical interpretation. It's always mm -hmm. the one lens of the one denomination that you're a part of is, is what I was always hearing. It was just like that. Anyway. So yeah, that process was mm -hmm. about kind of understanding that my perspective was, a, was one perspective and actually there was others. Mm -hmm. And so then the question was realize, sorry, it was realizing that actually it's okay to see things from different perspectives and to mm -hmm. disagree with people. And that it doesn't have to be an absolute right or wrong. And something that was revolutionary for me is that gray is okay. It's all right to not know the answer. And it's all right to say, you know what, on this one, we can agree to disagree. And it's absolutely fine. It doesn't make us non-believers or not, not brothers or anything else like that. And there can be things where you just don't have an answer. And, I'd, and I have areas of my faith now, which I was very sure on. And now I just really don't know, but it doesn't matter. I know God is good. I know he's bigger than those things. And I don't, don't need all the answers. I can trust him. You know, and I think, mm. and that's, that's, that's kind of like the, the hands-on reality, I think, of what I mean when I say, um, I feel that I emerged the richer for it. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, and I think that kind of leads into the next question quite well, um, in terms of the importance of uh, church history. Um, yeah. We, we do want to have you back at a later date to unpack that a little bit more but briefly we um we just like to uh to ask you what you think uh is the the importance the relevance of the subject um of church history yeah to us and our listeners um could you give like a five minute um overview of that yeah okay uh, do you want a five minute overview of church history or a five minute overview of why it's important? Uh, let's say of, of church history. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I will say this about its importance. I think Churchill said, if you, those who don't study history are destined to repeat it. 
And I think that's, uh, and we have some parts of church history which we should be very proud of and some parts which we should be very honest about and never want to repeat. Yeah. So if we are ignorant of those things, then we are asking for trouble as we move forward. Uh, a good example of that would be Christians asking questions or, you know, that to be honest, have been answered a very long time ago and very thoroughly. And yet, you know, people wave it around as being like, oh, this is an, an emergent church, new idea. It's like, actually, no, this is a third century heresy and we can put it to bed. So some of that stuff, I think we need to be wise about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would also say that we, I think there's a really good positive push in modern Christianity to under, appreciate context. Like when you look at scripture and things like that, it's like, well, you need to see things in their context to get a good understanding. Well, if we understand that about scripture, why should we not understand that about our own story? Um, you know, and you can take things like the enlightenment or you take monasticism or you take the reformation and when you start looking at things in context and getting a proper understanding of what's really going on there you can draw so much richness uh, for your own faith and your own approaches to things mm. so that's why i think it's important um yeah i, I get I, I don't understand why people have a question today about their faith and they and traditionally in protestant circles at least sorry i'm answering the other question in five minutes <laughs> my apology that's fine that's but all good it's, mm. essentially we're like i'm a christian i've got this question ah oh, let me go immediately to scripture well that's good but there's also two thousand years of people asking the same questions because they're common to humanity you know and a lot of people have actually dedicated their whole lives or there's been whole movements that have grown out of some of these things um that if we just don't know about them and we don't address them that feels really dumb like you know why reinvent the wheel every yeah. time you have a question there's yeah. people who have gone before you know tap into the wisdom of, the, of our answer of those of yeah of the the prior saints shall we say mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah so that's why it's important cloud of witnesses. That's yeah. <laughs> there you go cloud of witnesses thank you um okay so why so church history in itself i think if you break it down into chunks you kind of you see the the uh, the early church you see what the church can look like when it's an underground persecuted unpopular movement and that will give you encouragement if you're in a state that, that's like that then you look at um like the roman church once the church is then kind of signed off by constantine it becomes the official religion of rome and you can look at what happens when the church allies with the state and the dangers that are implicit with that in terms of corruption and power and wealth and influence and all these things and you, you can start to, you can compare Roman church with early church and you can see the pros and cons of both. And there are pros and cons to both. And just be aware and be wise, be informed and allow that to shape your thinking when people ask questions around modern politics and church involvement and these things. Like, to what extent should we be allying with the state and trying to, you know, saddle up to, to government? And to what extent should we actually be an underground movement of opposition mm. uh, and, and just push a Christian counterculture body of Christ that's actually very different to society you know there's there's two different ways of seeing that there and you'll get a better understanding when you know your church history um you can look at monasticism and this idea of withdrawing you know is that what do we learn about christian bubble mentality there this idea of withdrawing from society and just making it a bless me club and, and just very very insular there are strengths to that there are some advantages and there's also some real dangers and withdrawals with that mm -hmm. um you can look at enlightenment and see how apologetics has kind of been done before um and you know why we even have apologetics and using logic and reasoning and and you know these things to defend our faith and it's good in some ways can be really good you know and you look at the empiricists and the rationalists and, and the work that they did um in terms of defending faith 
but then you also have things like deism that kind of come out of that and so you need to you need to just hold this kind of carefully so it's yeah whether you're talking about any of these areas if i was to give an overview of church history it would kind of go early church underground movement roman church church and state uh monasticism withdrawing from the corruption and the problems that were going on in the church and trying to purify it and just and connect again with with purity and and separation as being one response that christians still kind of do quite a lot today mm. uh or you look at medieval times it becomes about power struggle between like essentially rome uh, the pope and the kings and and the church and, and kings and and that being a power struggle but also what a christian what a society based on a bedrock of christianity where the church just dictates rhythms of life um looks like and and again pros and cons with that um you could look at uh the crusades and what that has to teach us mm. uh, and you can contrast that with maybe with militant christianity and trying to you know take christianity out there and and, and be really super defensive about it um and yeah within that the schism maybe the great schism and why you have like catholic and greek orthodox and the later you have protestants and catholic coming out of that too um there's a lot there around division um that's still an issue today uh, and then it will probably be like enlightenment revivals social reform all those things so it, so the church history does kind of break down probably into about eight to ten key chunks that you could look at and to be honest they all speak to our common our common lives today our modern lives today um and i i think there's something there for everybody so mm. that's why it's important that's roughly what you'll find when you dig into it mm. um but yeah i'm sure you could find a youtube video or something that summarizes it a lot better than i just did um, I thought you did an exceptional elevator pitch Indeed. there. I had to say. Um, <laughs> I I'm reminded of um, you might know uh, John Green of uh, the Fault in Our Stars fame, but he's also done yep. like um, uh, Crash, Crash Course, Crash Course, exactly. Um, yep. As well as um, the Anthropocene Reviewed as a podcast, um, which is quite a clever one. Um, yep. He's a uh, he's apparently an ecumenical Christian. Um, yes, and it's curious about him talking about say particularly the Reformation, I've, I've seen some of his material on this. Um, I'm reminded of something he said about like, basically as a historian, he's weighing in on this and he says, basically, we yeah. shouldn't just dismiss religiosity um, thinking as like modern, postmodern, you know, uh, individuals in the 21st century when we seek to understand history through this lens because these ideas about say sociology you know saved by grace um hmm. these ideas about like you know um you know you mentioned you know monasticism and a, and a, a desire of like ascetism and like purity and faith like these ideas just because they're religious doesn't dismiss their validity and actually having huge impacts on people and society oh, totally right <clears throat> totally. And, I, yep. and i think like you do a disservice to the history i believe if you don't even as a as a non-christian even as someone from a different point of view even just someone as an atheist you do a disservice to history if you don't seek to explain one or seek to understand one these ideas and two their impact on people and people groups i think uh, totally. yeah that comes yep. across very much in what you're saying as well i think yeah totally and that i think that comes from it's interesting because i think we're, we might end up talking a little bit about selwyn so let me just chuck this in as a as a taster i think Selwyn is a controversial person. Oh, can you just qualify who you mean by Selwyn? Oh, sorry. So I mean, sorry, Bishop Augustus Selwyn, uh, the first bishop of New Zealand. 
Yeah. He um, he's a controversial figure. Some people in New Zealand today love him and see him as a real hero of the past. Other people hate him, see him as a real villain of the past. So how you know? And you look at and I, I personally, I think I'd fall more on the fan side. Um, I think that if you understand the times and this the world that he's living in and what he's trying to do, then you actually see a very positive perspective. Um, but I have found most people that would vilify Selwyn do so, and this is what I'm, what, why I'm referring to this, um, do so because they have quite a shallow understanding of what it means to kind of, uh, of historical analysis. So like you're saying, this idea where you separate religion and you separate this and you, and you essentially take a figure in history or a moment in history and you break it down into all these subcategories um, as if we are not complex beings living in complex times and we're actually the result of a whole medley of things going on all at once. You know, I'm not just a Christian. I'm also a father and, and I'm a son and I'm a brother and I'm all the, and I'm a husband and I'm, you know, and I'm trying to be faithful to God, but I'm also dealing with the practicalities of 21st century life in New Zealand and all these other things. And you can't just take, you can't say, oh, he did this and he's a Christian, therefore Christianity equals X. It, that's a really immature way to approach something. Mm -hmm. And so I just find, what you're saying there this this sense of breaking things down like like john green is saying you can't separate christianity as being oh it's just a faith it's just a religion or it's it's christianity as if it's one unified whole is responsible for violence crusades you know prejudice racism slavery it's like that is that is a very immature silly way to kind of conclude a historical analysis it's way more complicated than that and, and you can't pick christianity up with tweezers from an era and, and lay blame on it. Um, it's always a mixed bag. Yeah. Cool. Um, so on that, you, you, you've mentioned a few um, quite, quite big uh, moments, you know, eras of the, the Crusades, the, the Protestant yeah. Reformation and um, the Enlightenment era. Uh, what are some moments in church history that to you that are, are lesser known but in your opinion are important and deserve a bit more a bit more attention mm. um well the one that's coming to mind and uh, this is a little unprepared but i remember i was at university and we were studying um how christianity came to england and there's this little anecdote that just stuck with me uh, where essentially Christianity had existed in uh, very early England, Dark Age England, right? And it had spread throughout the country, but then England had been invaded by Angles and Dukes and Saxons who had largely taken over. They were pagan. And basically in the world at the time, it was if we win you, if we defeat you, sorry, in war, then our God is right and your God is wrong. And so the British church had continued, but it was basically in the unconquered territories of say Ireland and Scotland and, and Wales and areas like that, right? So it existed. And it was, and it is hard to know exactly what it was like, but it seems to be history hints that um, it had series of bishops and churches and all these other kind of things. Then you have this moment that is famous and well known and well documented um, by the historian Bede, where uh, Gregory, Pope Gregory, basically sees some English slaves, some Angles, and he says, you know, this, though all these are Angles, they must be like angels, they must have the gospel. And he sends a missionary, uh, Augustine, to go to England to bring the gospel, uh, Catholic gospel, to uh, the Roman, um, you know, 
papal gospel to uh, to England. This is and he arrives in 595, and he meets up with uh, King Ethelbert, and um, essentially he wins him over to Catholic Christianity. And he discovers that England already has Christianity, just in other areas, parts of England, right? And so he decides to meet up with the British bishops, the British Church. Now, he uh, so he agrees to meet these guys at this um, at this place. The British, uh, the British Church, basically at the time, saw holiness much more in line with what we see around monasticism. They they revered hermits. And so for them, a holy person was someone with absolute poverty who lived entirely on their own, was an, an aesthetic and, and lived up in the, the mountains. And so they seek out their holy people and they say, you know, what should we do? Should we accept this Augustine guy or not? He's saying he's come from Rome and he's got true Christianity. Do we believe him? And the hermit says, you know, well, you need to know, is he a humble person or is he a proud person? So what you should do is you should arrange to meet at a certain location and make sure that you arrive late. And when you arrive, if he stands to greet you, you know that he is a humble person who sees you as an equal and he will greet you and then listen to what he has to say. But if he stays seated and he's aloof, then he's a proud, arrogant person and true Christianity is not in him. He's not humble and you can you can reject his message. And so this is what they do. They arrange to meet St. Augustine and they uh, meet him below this tree. They arrive late. And as they approach, he stays seated. Why? Because to him, you show your holiness as a, so in, in terms of, in his worldview, his Christian, his Catholic Christian worldview, he, you show holiness by your, your presence, your prestige, your wealth, your clothing, your authority, you know, he was showing that he was the, the head dog in all of this situation and that he, there, they therefore should listen to him because he knows what he's about. But of course, the moment he's, he comes across this way, they see him as arrogant and not humble, not Christian, and they reject him. And so what could be this reconciliation of the British church and the Roman church coming together and doing something amazing ends up with them kind of essentially cursing each other and saying, oh, you know, you're not of God and, and, and so on. And Augustine curses the British church and he says, you know, you've rejected God and you've rejected his messenger and God is going to destroy you. And everyone's kind of left with this question of, well, which is the right Christianity? And then I think it's about 20 years later, there's this battle and um, the, uh, and I forget who it's between, but the king hears that the defending army has the British bishops interceding for his victory. And so rather marching to war against the, his, opponent, his opposing king, he attacks the monastery where all the monks are gathered and he slaughters all the monks. And in this one move, some 2,000 uh, or so monks and bishops, basically the entire leadership of the British church is destroyed. And people see this moment and they look at it and they say, Augustine was right. The Roman Catholic Church is the true religion. And literally, like the, the British church largely dies out at that point. And the Roman and kind of the Catholic Christianity dominates England. And so it's just, it was just this moment below a tree where two groups of people misunderstood each other based on different worldviews and different understandings. And it shaped a nation. And it, mm. and it just, it blew my mind that this kind of thing happens. And we got to be able to do better than that, eh? Mm, and yeah. so they, these are the little things that have happened throughout history that have just had huge consequences um, that we just don't know about. And I, I find them fascinating. So that, that was what came to mind. I've always remembered that. Mm. Cool. Yeah, I, I think like your passion, obviously, for history is definitely evident in what you've shared thus far. Um, 
and certainly speaks to you know the themes that you've actually highlighted in your thesis um yeah you you've in preparation for this cast you've shared with us that there are five key themes that your thesis actually addresses um yeah pertinent to what you're just saying like i definitely think um The, there is a degree to which your thesis talks about the actual the high church relationship with New Zealand at large, but also Māori in particular in some aspects. And I, I also respect your your candor and humility as a academic actually saying, hey, you know, there's some stuff I definitely don't know about here and I'm not going to presume to talk yep. to it. Um, but this is what I can speak to where St. Paul's is um, related, because I mean, that's yeah. the that's the object of the thesis, right? It has to actually be quite yeah. particular to actually contribute new knowledge to the field of academia. But yeah, like um, I, I wonder if we could actually go through some of those um, aspects because mm, some yeah, of those totally. things, and particularly like I, seeing that segue, like I, I think it's really interesting that actually from my own having done uh, New Zealand, History of New Zealand Christianity paper with Laidlaw last year, it's just interesting that multiplicity of perspectives often weighing in on actually what becomes written history and actually what is actually the enduring legacy, the enduring uh, relationships, consequences, positive or negative. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, and it's curious that basically our history is what we inherit from our, from our, ancestors you know uh, as mm -hmm. their descendants you know christian or otherwise we've inherited this history and we therefore as christians in the 21st century new zealand have to outwork that but yeah uh I'm, i'll get off the soapbox <laughs> and, uh I, i'm curious about yeah these these five themes like I'm, I'm i'm excited to actually hear you speak to them first on that list um you in your thesis detail the uh, Māori and high church relationships and connections to St. Paul's. Um, yeah, please tell us more about that. Mm. Thanks, Jared. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's worth mentioning here at the outset that um, a little bit about St. Paul's Church and why and where these five themes come from. Mm. Um, so, sorry. So, um, essentially, St. Paul's was the first church in Auckland. Uh, it was the uh, it was the first permanent church building in all of New Zealand. Um, it's not the oldest church, but it is the oldest Anglican parish. It was founded in 1841 by Governor Hobson, who was obviously the first governor of New Zealand. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the deed for Auckland, the land deed, the signing over of the land deed um, was in September 1840. And so this is the foundation stone for St. Paul's was laid in July 1841. So it's, it's super early. I mean, you know, Auckland at the time is a, a, a collection of tents and shacks and things along the, the coastline. It's not, it, it's, it's the city of promise, not the city of reality, essentially. Um, and so it becomes a really significant building. It's also um, a lot of money gets put into it. A lot of um, focus and energy gets put into building it. It's as much um, an icon of uh, English traditional kind of thinking. You know, it's this uh, neo-Gothic building, arguably the first neo-Gothic church structure in the whole of the Antipodes. Um, seems to predate anything like it in Australia. Uh, and, and it's this sort of like a beacon on the hill. As any ships were coming through the harbour, one of the first things they would see would be this old style, English style church right there on the promontory um, that just sends a message. As much as it being a place of worship, it was a message. This is an English town. We are replicating London. 
they even called it St. Paul's after St. Paul's Cathedral. You know, we're replicating London here uh, in New Zealand. We're rebuilding the mother country kind of thing. Uh, and so St. Paul's becomes really significant because it is uh, it's, it holds a number of titles. The first is that it's the vice regal church. So it was not only um, laid or founded by Governor Hobson, it was also where all the governors uh, attended or in those early days when the capital was in Auckland. Um, you know, that they had a reserved seat for the governor, uh, all of the, you know, the secretary general and, you know, magistrates and people, if they were Anglican, then they would attend St. Paul's. It was just where you went. Um, it was also the garrison church. Um, so the first vicar of St. Paul's was Reverend Churton, and he was also the garrison chaplain. And he would hold services every week in St. Paul's, specifically for the military. And all of the officers that were stationed in New Zealand were basically stationed at Auckland, uh, which is where Britomart Barracks was, and then later Albert Barracks. And they would attend St. Paul's Church, unless obviously they were Presbyterian, they would go to St. Andrews, or if they were Catholic, they'd go to St. Patrick's. Um, but if they were Anglican, then they would go to St. Paul's. And uh, it was also the pro-cathedral. So before Chip Selwyn was able to build a cathedral, he essentially had used St. Paul's as his, not his base of, not his, his base of, um, it wasn't his mission base because he was obviously building, uh, you know, you have Selwyn Court and you have all, all the work down at Koromaramara and Bishop's Court and things like that. So that, that was a separate entity. But in terms of official services or kind of like ordinations of clergy, that all took place at St. Paul's if it was in Auckland. Um, and so it was his pro-cathedral right up until St. Mary's was built. So for more than 40 years, St. Paul's was um, the pro-cathedral of the Bishop of New Zealand and Melanesia. Um, and we can talk about all these things, but it's, and they're kind of the, the key ones, the vice-regal, the pro-cathedral and the garrison church. There were two other things where St. Paul's was also really significant. Um, the laying of the foundation stone of St. Paul's was also the first Freemason ceremony in New Zealand. There had been one previously on board a ship off the coast uh, down near Christchurch, but the only the first one on land was the laying of the foundation stone at St Paul's and the first um, Masonic Lodge in New Zealand was Arrow Lodge in Auckland, and that was founded by the same people that were essentially building the church synonymously at the same time, it was the same group of people. And um, so that the, its connections with Freemasonry were quite strong as well, and lastly would be its connection in education so St Paul's being. Um, kind of like at a very, very early stage, it was this kind of brick, you know, large building in a place full of wooden and canvas and rapport kind of structures. Mm. Um, it served a communal, a, a process, sorry, a purpose in community life. Um, and uh, for one thing, it was the first school in Auckland. It ran a Sunday school. That was kind of the first moment of education that we had here. Uh, and then it actually, once public education came into force, it became, um, yeah, the first public school, the building was used. Um, this was now in the 1880s. Uh, it was used as, yeah, the public school for, um, for Auckland as well. So uh, it's, it's, it, those are really the main things, like kind of social philanthropy and education, Freemasonry, and then garrison, vice-regal, and pro-cathedral. Uh, that's with such a, a poignant history. It, that story had to be mm. told. And so yeah. that's that's why I started digging around. Now, Jared, you asked first about its um, the connection with uh, Maori High Church. Is that correct? Yeah, like um, I mean, I'm I'm conscious of be before the presence of you said 1841 when the actual uh, church was established. Is that correct? 
founded. It wasn't complete founded. until 1844. Yeah. Yes, you did say that. Sorry. It took a while um, to build that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm curious um, in my own kind of a limited knowledge on, you know, the trends in New Zealand Christianity. Uh, prior to this, we have quite a grassroots presence where we see the CMS missionaries actually um, yep. forming missional outposts all throughout New Zealand. Um, we also see uh, contesting that there's the establishment of some um, some Catholic missionaries in places from the late yep. 1830s, um, a little bit early in uh, early 1830s, you know, even late 1820s, we saw um, uh, Presbyterians actually uh, set up in some yep. places. Sorry, want to clarify that Presbyterians came much later. Wesleyans. Wesleyans <laughs> yeah, Wesleyans are Methodists. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yes, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, but the kind of Christianity we see prior to this, and, you know, arguably, you know, that's why it was so successful. You know, we're talking about revival proportions among, alongside and among Māori. Um, was this kind of grassroots effort, right? We, you know, they cite in some statistics as many as um, 60,000 uh, Māori would have actually been uh, attending services of varying denominations in that 1830s to 1840s period. Not all, yeah. you know, baptized, you know, uh, uh, committed believers, but of a population of some estimated seventy thousand Māori in all of New Zealand at the time, that's quite a significant influence on actual the the presence of Christianity to come, the influence of Christianity to come, like that. That was yeah. by the eighteen thirties so prevalent, and so I say this to actually then mention that when we see actually uh selwyn come in um in the early 1840s there seems to be kind of a changing of the guard um with that era um it's less about the cms missionary work and what has been done prior it's more about the introduction of high church and actually yeah uh also establishing a bit of a uh a contesting presence you could say with roman catholicism because in in those days there still was very much a kind of sense of well, we're Catholic and we're Anglican and like, you know, we can't yeah. see eye to eye. Though curiously, that wasn't necessarily the case in New Zealand settler population. Um, that they, there was a lot of actual cross-pollination. There was a lot of getting along. But almost mm. to say, like, um, I, I wonder about actually what tone that sent amongst uh, both local iwi and the iwi more, uh, you know, nationally. That you actually see kind of this changing of the guard this changing of leadership um mm. and otherwise to actually what are the if you could speak to what are some of those associations with the maori and then actually saint paul's because it is such a significant cathedral um mm. any thoughts on that oh there's a lot there um yes you're right and this is where a lot of um this is where a lot of criticism comes from with regards to Selwyn is essentially you have a very contextual Christianity, which is, um, uh, is now I'm not, and I'm not so informed in this area, but as I understand it, you have a very contextual Christianity that essentially is very approachable and understandable uh, in, in Maori culture. Um, and it's the it's the product of CMS missionaries who have spent decades living here amongst Maori, setting up mission stations amongst Maori, right? And but when Selwyn comes along, 
this is the time New Zealand, you say changing of the guard, but basically New Zealand as a country is changing of the guard. It's becoming a colony. It's becoming independent of New South Wales. Um, it's becoming a British um, extension of the empire. And as such, it now has a governor. It now has an army. It now has all these other different things or, or it has members of the British army. Um, and with it comes the establishment of the Church of England. Now, this is something that the CMS missionaries had wanted and had been petitioning for. Um, but it came with all the hallmarks of Church of England with it. You know, they weren't interested in a contextualized New Zealand flavor church. They wanted the Church of England and they were going to establish the Church of England. But to suggest that, that Selwyn didn't have a, a complete love and heart for Māori would be wrong. He absolutely loved Māori. He absolutely wanted them to have the gospel. Uh, and, and any suggestion that he saw them as inferior is just wrong. It really is. Um, and there is, and so this is where I, I think you end up with poor readings of history when you come up with those kind of conclusions. But that, but at the same time, he was he was high church. He wanted to build he wanted to build the Church of England in New Zealand, and yeah, he wanted to kind of tweak it so it worked in the New Zealand context. But he still wanted to essentially replicate what he had, what he always knew and, and had been raised in in England. And and, and a real clear hallmark of that is concerning concerning architecture. You know, he was very clear in his final sermon in England talking about how they were going to raise um, essentially similar stone structures that glorified God uh, in New Zealand as they do, as they had in England. Um, and then he quickly finds that that's just not possible in New Zealand, despite several attempts to do so. Um, and so he essentially converts over to wood and starts building wooden churches instead. But again, in this kind of like hybrid Gothic style that was reminiscent of if not a direct replica of but reminiscent of this english high church kind of um, presence so um yeah so i think that's really where it, it it differs and he did have some high standards and expectations i suppose and so whereas some cms missionaries may have been uh more comfortable to say for example ordain moldy people that showed real heart real promise real kind of character guts if they couldn't speak and I'm, I'm spitballing here but if they couldn't speak greek or latin or whatever it was that selwyn had said as a mandate for any kind of ordination then they didn't they didn't make the cut until they had done those things but there's ample evidence that he uh you know worked with maori included maori saw them as as completely equal as as pakiha and all these other things so it really depends on i think <clears throat> the reason why he comes off in a bad press from a christian perspective because his involvement in the, in the wars later is a different issue. There, I think the reason he gets a bad press among Christians is that there was essentially a thriving contextualized church here. Selwyn wanted it in a high church Anglican kind of way. And as a result, a lot of people, I think a lot of Maori moved away from the church. Hmm. And you can lay the blame for that at Selwyn's feet if you want to. But again, I think that's an overly simplistic reading of history. And I, and I, and I feel that he gets a bad press when people start thinking that he was anti-Maori or racist or, you know, British first and, and all this kind of stuff, because you just don't see that when you, when you see his life. Yeah. It's, it's curious um, that there, you know, there's a lot of uh, evidence of correspondence uh, showing advocacy of Maori, you know, using Absolutely. his role, yeah. Yeah, using his yeah. role to basically say like, um, you know, to political powers that were, you know, Hey, no, this needs to be done. This is in accordance with the treaty. You know, yeah. there is a lot of evidence that actually suggests that was um, his yeah. role. But he had that difficult role of like, well, 
I'm serving, you know, two masters here because it's like while I believe like you know uh, my heart is for evangelism and that these people would have every access to the gospel that you know any settler any member of yeah. the settler population would have. Also, there is that equivalent. Um, yeah, that actually, um, I see myself as a, in service for queen and country. Jared, let me give you a couple of examples that would help yes. illustrate this. So you're absolutely right. First of all, Selwyn learns Tadeo on the journey over to New Zealand, right? He, 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 <clears throat> he works with a, a Maori person, a, a man on the ship, and he learns the language. And when he arrives in New Zealand, the first thing he does is he holds a service in St. Paul's and he delivers the address, half of it in Maori. Wow. And, he's, and the people are amazed that he's speaking Māori already fluently and they can completely understand him. So you don't do that if you are, you know, European, aloof, civilized first, Christianized later and all that kind of stuff. So he really wanted to connect in with the people in a way that they understood. Secondly, Reverend Churton, who was the vicar of St. Paul's, was very much an imperialist, uh, a bit of a racist, very much, you know, Pakeha first, Māori later kind of thing. And he absolutely butted heads with Selwyn um, and um, Vismus Lush I think uh, reflects in some of these things with and he's like you know how can Churton who's has spent the last 11 years making life as miserable and impossible for the bishop as possible now expect his favor with this other kind of thing you know and and, and what's really fascinating and that actually came out as part of the research with the thesis is that Reverend Churton um, had essentially been sent over by England before New Zealand was a colony and once it now becomes officially a colony, he then kind of falls under, um, he falls under Selwyn's authority. And so he has to get his ministerial license reissued by the bishop. He has to get it signed off by Selwyn. Selwyn added a handwritten note to Reverend Churton's ministerial license that he was only allowed to continue practicing as a minister on condition that he learned Tereo and treats uh, Maori people equally with Pakeha people, gives them equal attention in his ministry and everything else. Wow. We have that in Selwyn's handwriting on Reverend Churton's uh, ministerial license, and it's in the Auckland Anglican Diocese archives. So something mm -hmm. like that is really, I think, is a, speaks volumes um, to who he was and to the approach he took. And the fact that he was always conflicting with Churton because he was an imperialist. Um, and, and a third example, too, is that Selwyn was, put it, was basically put in charge of the Māori Endowment Fund. Now, in theory, the taxes that were coming into the colonial treasury a percentage of those were supposed to be reserved solely for use for Māori, to build uh, Māori hospitals, Māori schools, Māori churches, Māori whatever it is that was needed for the benefit of Māori specifically. And it was between 15 and 20% of total revenue. I mean, it was a really big, uh, really big ask. And Selwyn were, and then later George Gray were put in charge of that fund. But the only thing that was ever used from that fund, basically money wasn't put in it. The, the government was too completely strapped and, and trying to solve all these problems and build a capital and set up government and everything else. They didn't have money for, for that, for any kind of non-absolute essentials. And so, mm -hmm. but Selman is the one who raises the flag and says, guys, this is not acceptable. You know, by this point, and he's, I forget at what point he's saying this, would it be late 1840s, uh, mid to late 1840s? He's saying, guys, by this point, we should have pro multiple projects on the go and other things already done, and yet nothing, not a single pound has been spent for the benefit of Māori. Not a single, the only thing that the Māori Endowment Fund had any kind of claim to was that it funded uh, the Minister to the Aborigines, is what they called it at the time, which was essentially um, the representative for Māori interests to the British government. Uh, and yeah, 
and that was it that was they were they were financed they, their salary was paid by the endowment fund but that was it there was nothing else being built and Selwyn's the one who says you know this is not acceptable this is not okay um so yeah so I think he does multiple things on behalf of Maori that is very unpopular among the Europeans and he's regularly you know fighting Europeans that are imperialists and, and standing up for European rights above Maori and he's like that's not the way this country is going to be that's not how this church is supposed to be yeah that's awesome so hopefully those are some helpful examples that illustrate why i feel the way i do very yeah. very much so yeah th those are um that's great um thanks Kevin. no yeah speak speaking to uh i guess as as you briefly mentioned earlier um and the the, the second point uh outlined or theme rather outlined in your thesis um of the role of saint paul's as auckland's first church um yeah with officials ruling powers um uh what what can you tell us about that there, there are obviously a few different things maybe starting with say the socio-political dynamics that come into play there yeah um i think st paul's gets off to a flying start because governor hobson is an anglican and so he wants to set up the capital of Auckland. And so he wants an Anglican church. The people that are starting to, to move there want an Anglican church. They want to replicate England. And this, one of the first things you do, I mean, the first buildings they build is the governor's house. Uh, they build a storehouse down in Commercial Bay and they start building St. Paul's. And that's basically, they're like, if we can sort out and they build a jail and that's like it. You have a jail they started work on a courthouse. You have the governor's house and the church. And, uh, and he, he basically promises government money to build the church. He and no other church. The Presbyterians are like choice. He he gives he gives the best plot of land in Auckland for St Paul's to be built on, uh, and the Catholics likewise. And the Presbyterians are like brilliant. Where's our piece of land? And he's like, no, nah, this is kind of an Anglican thing. Uh, he does later give land to um, uh, to the Presbyterians where St Andrews is now, uh, but it should be noted that they originally rejected the first plot of land they were given. And they were like, this is a joke. Look what you gave St. Paul's and this is what we get. And so they lobbied and managed to get something a bit better. But compared to St. Paul's, it was, again, it was a reminder that the Anglican church is the one that gets the government funding. It gets the, the prime piece of land. It was built on Emily Place, which was the name of Hobson's wife. It was founded by the governor. And while it was under construction, St. Paul's members were allowed to meet in his house, right? So it is very much tied in with Governor Hobson as a personality. Unfortunately, he dies in 1842. And so St. Paul's continues, obviously, as a, it's still under construction. It's not even open mm. at this point. But um, the next guy that comes along, uh, he also helps to fund the church. And then he's kind of a member of that church. Um, and uh, he, uh, and then when Gray comes along, uh, it's up and running and, and, and similar things. So I think as it has an affiliation by because of its connection to Hobson, which I think is really key. And what's significant with that and is that Hobson is buried in Grafton Cemetery, which is up the road from St. Paul's Church. It was the Auckland Cemetery. Uh, his service is led by Reverend Churton, the minister of St. Paul's, and his memorial tablet is in St. Paul's Church. It was built um, probably around 1850. So it's a little bit later than when Hobson died. Um, but it's basically a big marble um, inverted shield tablet. Um, and it's and what's really significant about this is that it's actually written in both English and in Toreo. And I, I don't know if you know Dr. Harini Carr from University of Auckland, but he actually had a look at this and he was 
very surprised at the use of, of the Maori terminology and some of the spelling. And he said that this was a very early um, engraving uh, and that it had been engraved by Maori carvers. And, um, and he felt that it was a really significant and yet not really recognized nationally monument to Hobson uh, that's actually still in the walls of St. Paul's today on Simon Street. And you can go in the church wow. and see it right there. Um, and that, as far as I know, is the main memorial to Hobson besides his grave up in Grafton Cemetery. So um, it, it, was, it was more, what I'm trying to say is that it was, um, it was the vice regal church by affiliation, but at the moment it starts stepping into places of authority, it, it, it very quickly loses power. Essentially it becomes, um, I, I would summarize it this way. I think St. Paul's was, it was a place where the governors would go, but when they started to challenge the governors on things, then St. Paul's would always lose. It wasn't a, 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 an entity of authority in its own right in that sense. It was the vice regal church by affiliation. Uh, it was symbolic of, you know, well, we are the governors, we are Anglican, this is the New England here in Auckland. Um, but yeah, but it wasn't essentially a, a powerhouse in its own right politically, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, there, there would also... Uh, mentioned earlier, I guess, uh, bef before the cast, um, there was a connection uh, and division of, of church and state in relation to St. Paul's. And uh, can, yeah. can you explore the, the Pākehā and Māori takes on this? Um, division of church and state. In terms of St. Paul's, I think the two things that would illustrate that. First of all, when you first see St. Paul's, you get these little glimpses in those really early days. See, unfortunately, a lot of stuff doesn't survive. But what we do see, we know that there were four services on a Sunday. Two of them were for Māori, two of them were for Pākehā. Now that tells you that right from a very early stage, A, it's good to know that Māori were attending St. Paul's and were, you know, were attending. Um, and some of the accounts you know, talk about how they appear in, in European dress and so forth. But it also shows that you essentially have separated congregations. You have Maori congregations and mm. European congregations, mm. which doesn't bode well. And I think it's by around, you know, the church isn't even complete until 1844. And I think it's around 1849. People are lobbying for St. Barnabas's to be built as a Maori church for the Maori people. And what may seem distasteful for us today is that I was reading some of the um, essentially some of the promotional material that was being handed out amongst the, the population of Auckland, encouraging them to give to St. Barnabas and to paraphrase in, you know, early 19th century, um, sorry, late 19th century speak, it essentially says, if you give your money to build St. Barnabas church, then we can build a church for the Maori and they can go and attend over there. That's putting it bluntly, but essentially that's kind of what it says. As a bit of a mm. golden carrot to the Europeans to donate, it essentially says we would get rid of them amongst our own churches. Now that's that's by 1849, I think. Some I'm a bit rusty on some of these dates. Gents, please excuse me. Um, but More yeah, that, that was something that stood out to me in my research um, as being a real shame. And I think mm. uh, especially once uh, conflict was really, especially because St. Paul's was linked with the garrison and it was linked with the vice regals, the moment you start getting kind of um, conflict, particularly in the Northern War, uh, and then later on uh, in the, like the New Zealand Wars, there's St. Paul's is symbolic of the enemy of the, you know these kind of movements, and so um, yeah, very quickly any remnant Maori would evaporate. Uh, yeah, interestingly, there's actually a, an account 
things around, uh, I think it's the ordination of um, Bishop Patterson. And so it'd be 18s, I, I don't want to say, I'll forget. But uh, there's, a, there's a report of the service and there are some Melanesian choir boys. And essentially the, the person writing the article says, it was nice, to, he, he basically says, it's nice to see uh, moldy faces again in the church. Well, it's nice to see, you know, brown faces or, or native faces here in St. Paul's again. Now, I mean, he's wrong because they're Melanesians and they're part of their students down in Karimara. But again, it shows that this was a very unfamiliar site now uh, in St. Paul's. Uh, so much so that he doesn't even really recognize where they're from or who they are. Yeah. Um, and there has been, you know, so I think, so that's one thing I think. Um, and also just as a side note, I know we haven't talked about the military yet, but I did mention there in the, in the Northern War in 1845, there was a, there was a real scare in Auckland that Maori, that, you know, Napui would invade Auckland. And so the town was essentially on high alert and it was St. Paul's church that was used as the, the refuge. It was the only building big enough to house the population. It was made of stone. And so they cleared the land around it um, they, uh, to give no cover to any enemy approaching. They barricaded all the windows um, and they, you know, they put a, a, a cover over the font. And um, there was actually one night where gunshots were heard in 1845. And so the town was evacuated into St. Paul's Church. And the women and children spent the night in there and the, the garrison, um, excuse me, um, protected the exterior and come morning light they went to investigate and found that a chief had died in what we now call Newmarket and they had fired some shots over his body in respect but it had put it freaked the town out so much they had all evacuated into St Paul's so again I think this is another illustration of how St Paul's clearly sided with Europeans in mm. any kind of conflict that would be European versus Maori and that's yeah. never going to bode well for you know a, a combined congregation and so forth yeah. yeah. Now I can talk later about attempts to reconcile that, but in terms of that separation between church and state, I think that becomes uh, that becomes quite key, quite a key one. Yeah. Yeah. Does Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good lead into actually as a theme. You've hinted at it a couple times already, but then uh, another key theme of your thesis addresses um, the military and the history of the war in New Zealand in parentheses. Yeah. St. Paul's as the Church of the Garrison. Um, mm. it's, it's interesting that there are some Māori, Christian and non-Christian who will still not enter St. Paul's today for that very reason, yeah. because of its association yeah. with um, the colonial wars. Um, there, I'm reminded of an anecdote, um, like I mentioned that paper I was doing last year, in a forum post with um, uh, a fellow mate, he was a uh, a Māori guy came and spoke to our church actually as well. Um, basically, he shared an anecdote of a similar instance in a New Plymouth congregation and how in this New Plymouth congregation, these Māori kaumatua enter in and uh, they saw this um, colonial like paraphernalia, some kind of miscellaneous like uh, items there for historic posterity uh, within the church. And, you know, basically the the Māori Komatua said, like the the elder who was giving them a tour, it's like, you know, you've got to take that down. Like that should not be in here. That should not remain in here. But then yeah. the other Komatua present said, no, actually that should be here. That should remain because that's our history and you can't just yeah. whitewash history. You've actually got to yeah. leave those elements. So that was interesting, even in their fight mm -hmm. corridor, like even them themselves, there wasn't, there was a disparity of opinion representing. But, um, mm. but all this to say, like, um, it's it's 
in the particular assessment I wrote for that paper, um, I contrasted the 1830s where you see explosive uh, numbers of uh, Māori, you know, not only showing interest in Christianity, but converting to Christianity, to then the 1860s yeah. where there's this kind of like theological wrestling that actually the Māori population have to do. Well, what parts of this is synonymous with faith and what parts of this is not synonymous with faith because you know the christian god clearly can't be about this you know we believed we were signing or our chiefs on our behalf of the iwi the respectively yeah. were signing to a covenant a sacred compact you know when they signed the treaty of waitangi and so that yeah. therefore we're entitled soon at certain rights as crown citizens um that the the queen herself is actually vouchsafing these are uh, these uh inalienable rights you could call it but then um yeah like obviously you see the emergence of like the te kingi ta kingi tanga movement um mm -hmm. in the late 1850s 1860s as kind of a a resistance to this um not least of all uh interesting is the fact that there were a number of significant maori christians um, who were part of that movement and actually were trying to represent a, a different way of seeing things and actually saying, well, clearly yeah. it's not this, whatever is happening, um, we need to actually have, I'm, I'm getting a bit nuanced here and I want to be more generalist, but you know, like you've, we clearly need a, a monarch to represent our claims to said monarch if we're actually yeah. a, a, a similar balance of power where these things are considered and actually where there's an equality of justice being meted out here. Um, yeah, it's, it's curious that actually this is at that point in time, you've got, um, you know, a settler population who are thinking it's like, well, why are the indigenous population being so incensed and being so, uh, you know, unjustifiably, uh, you know, argumentative about this, you know, like it just doesn't make sense to us. And then you've got the Māori population, Christian and non-Christian saying, you know, we were guaranteed certain rights and, you know, this is being uh, misconstrued, uh, confused, or, you know, deliberately misrepresented. So, you know, the, yeah. the Europeans can come in and just take what they want. So it's, it's interesting and all mixed. Like, I don't envy George Selwyn's role in all this. Uh, certainly yeah. not. But like, obviously, uh, your point at the end there, it's um, quite poignant and quite sad. I think that St. Paul's is a church in instances of European versus Maori often uh, sided with the European side of the conflict. Um, yeah, I just wondered if you could speak to that. I have, uh, you know, I've mm. kind of a, a context, I suppose, but. Yeah, <clears throat> um, so from this, the point of view of St. Paul's. So this is a, a, mi a mixed bag and um, yeah, and it, it's essentially, okay, so let, it divides into two halves, I, I would say, if I'm gonna try and keep this simple. Um, you, the, the first half is the obvious one, which is that it was the church of the garrison. It's where all the British troops basically attended church and they would go off and they would fight and not all of them would return. And those who have fallen would then be commemorated in plaques and epitaphs and that would be put on the walls of, of their church of St. Paul's as the church of the garrison. Um, and so you do have memorials still hanging on the walls of St. Paul's today, which are uh, unpopular. And uh, you have very similar things to what you explained in New Plymouth, where you have people saying these need to be taken down and other people saying, no, you can't whitewash history. We need to see this 
you know, be confronted with the reality. You know, when it says, you know, this person, this person, you know, John Shaw Phelps, who died of wounds received while, uh, while bravely fighting the hostile Maori at Rangitira. It's like, well, what do you do with that? Do you, do you leave that up? And, and interestingly, on that epitaph, there's actually a, a sticker that someone has put over the word hostile. Uh, and then someone else has ripped it off, but there's still the sticky residue around the word. And so there's this, this little glimpse of actually living history since then. Uh, one of the other plaques, which lists all the fall, uh, fallen officers, both at sea and on land during the New Zealand wars, uh, at any point of the conflict. And there's damage on the corner where it was ripped off the wall and thrown in a skip. And then somebody found it and they returned it and it was later then reinstated in the church. So it, these are memorials of contention. Um, should we, you know, and we have to own that. At the end of the day, um, St. Paul's was firmly sided with the, the colonial forces that were fighting against um, Maori in opposition. Let's just, let's just phrase it that way. And the two prominent vicars at the time of the New Zealand wars would be uh, Bishop Selwyn, obviously, and then St. Paul's his indirect base, um, and uh, Reverend Lloyd. And Selwyn and Lloyd both were chaplains to the British forces fighting in the war against Māori. So that's, that's all the bad stuff. <laughs> and let's be honest about that. But, and, and even, and this is the thing, Lloyd, Lloyd is an amazing guy. John Frederick Lloyd, he's the second vicar of St. Paul's, unlike Churton, who's this imperialist, racist, and so forth. He dies in 1853, and he's replaced by Reverend Lloyd by Bishop Selwyn. Reverend Lloyd is someone who is in love with Māori and Māori culture, and he is fully embracing. He's part of the Fila Māori uh, kind of group that are always advocating for their rights against those, you know, against Europeans trying to take them away. You know, he's always siding with Selwyn on these things. He's a signatory to these letters. When I mentioned previously about them writing against the governor for what they were doing to Māori, Lloyd was one of the signatories that did that, and that's why St Paul's ended up in trouble. Um, so in that sense, they, that's actually some of the really good stuff. Um, and so then, well, then why would these men like Lloyd and Selwyn, why would they be chaplains to the imperial forces against Māori if they love Māori? Well, this is where we come back to this idea of understanding them as being men of their time. And as men of their time, they love Māori, but they also believe that they should be submissive to the crown, just like all British citizens should be. And so essentially they saw them as being rebels and they therefore thought, I mean, like Selwyn basically saw war was inevitable and um, best that it be over with quickly. And that, um, you know, essentially every diplomatic opportunity had been, had been extended and that somehow if he was involved in the front lines, he could do two things. And the same, would, I would argue, the same would probably be thought by Lloyd since they were so similar in so many other things. But we, we can see with more clarity around Selwyn. Firstly, he could actually be a minister to the British troops that were serving there. And while we may see them as the villains sometimes, they were still men and sons and fathers and so forth that were doing a job and were doing what they believed was right um, and they needed they wanted god's comfort and ministry and, and church and everything else on the field as well so he wanted to be a minister to those troops secondly by being right up in the in the in the face of it all he could actually have a hand in trying to stem some of the violence and i can give you examples of how he tried to do that there's a conflict where basically um Oh, what was it? Uh, uh, is it Duncan Cameron, Dun uh, General Duncan, Cameron Duncan, whoever the, the general is leading the British forces, kicks Selwyn out of camp because he is insisting that he basically parlay or try and negotiate a peace with the Māori rather than go in an attack. And he basically thinks that Selwyn oversteps his authority, is pushing too hard for this uh, for this kind of sense of peace, and he kicks him, strikes him from camp. 
Um, if I can find the specifics of that later, maybe I'll send it to you and we can put it in a footnote or something. But um, so that if anyone wants evidence for this, they can look it up. But um, yeah, so he's kicked out of camp and Lloyd kind of is, is sent in as his replacement. <clears throat> well, why does that happen? It happens because Selwyn is trying to prevent the violence. He's trying to use his influence and his position there on the front lines to, um, to soften what's actually going on. And I think, and I'm not an expert in this stuff, but as far as I'm aware from both Maldi and Pakiha sources that I've consulted, a lot of the accusation against Selwyn is that he was seen carrying a rifle, that he was involved in certain attacks during the war and things like that, that he was, you know, seen carrying a rifle. But um, the only time that he was known to have carried a rifle was when he was helping carry a wounded person. And so he was, and so forth. And then this other one where he was accused of an attack in the village, he was actually, other Maori were like, no, he was actually with us and he was tending to wounded and so forth. So there's a few things there which have just been um, propaganda, which have been labeled on Selwyn that are actually baseless historically um, that are still kind of make up pop thinking today around Selwyn and his involvement in the war. So what can we say about it then? Both of Selwyn and Lloyd during the war, the New Zealand wars, they were both chaplains to the British forces. They were both ministers connected with St. Paul's Church, that was the Church of the Garrison, and housed memorials to the fallen. They oversaw memorial services to British fallen troops. Okay, all of that would be true. But they also advocated on behalf of Māori right up until the conflict. They advocated on behalf of Māori to an extent during the conflict. Um, and their heart was always immediately for reconciliation. And that comes out abundantly clear in, in this last example I want to give. The 58th Foot Regiment, which was the Auckland Infantry Regiment based uh, in New Zealand. It was like the main regiment. When they first landed in New Zealand, they unfurled the military, the standard for their unit, right? The regimental colors. And they were being the, suppose since it was the garrison church was their home church. And they were so connected with the church that when they left New Zealand in 1858, they, um, they donated golden candelabras to the church as a thank you. And then when the, the flag was then later updated, they donated their military standard to St. Paul's Church to hang in the church as a sign of respect and thank you and the, the close affiliation of the regiment with the church. Reverend Lloyd and Selwyn refused the colours. Now, this may seem like just an offhand thing um, for you and I today, but if a regiment donates their regimental standard to your church, that is a kingly gift, okay? If you don't know this, so regimental colors um, are not just like any flag. <clears throat> in order to be regimental colors, they have to be blessed, hands-on blessed by the British crown, the, the monarch, and they bless the flag. And after that point, they can't be destroyed. And so once a flag, if a regiment gets disbanded or a flag gets updated or something like that, the flag can't be destroyed because it's been blessed by the king. And so what they do is they hang it in churches and allow it to slowly decay over time. Now, if you go to English cathedrals and churches, you may see very threadbare flags that can date all the way back to the medieval era where this very thing has happened. And so this is a British regiment, and one of their highest honors is to donate their flag or give their flag to a significant church. And so to refuse that honor and say, no, we're not having your flag here is a really, really big deal. And it really upset a lot of people in Auckland and it made the papers and, and Lloyd and Selwyn were vilified for their decision to the point that they had to write open letters to the public. And this is what Lloyd says. And he says this, until the time shall arrive when the conflicts in which the two races in this country have been engaged can be referred to without any danger of awakening jealousies or causing irritation of feeling on either side, 
it would obviously be inexpedient to display the banners representing those conflicts in a church where no jealousies of race or feelings of hostility should ever be permitted to enter, but where men should remember only that they are one in Christ. Wow. Now that to me is pretty solid evidence that, um, that there was this immediate attempt for reconciliation. And when Bishop, when Bishop Selwyn left New Zealand, his, memorial, his farewell service was held at St. Paul's and he spoke in Toreo and in English. And there were Māori there amongst the people to farewell him that weren't congregants. Mm. <clears throat> there were familiar faces to farewell him, both within and outside the church. You know, and, and again and again, you can look at the anecdotes of Selwyn's life. And he, he says, you know, he, he realised that his affiliation with the colonial forces was his undoing in terms of Māori relations. And that he henceforth was never trusted on a wide national scale by Māori anymore. Um, and so, and he said, you know, I sit among the ruins of my own making, but rather than just mope and, and groan, I'm going to try and rebuild again from the ashes is kind of one of his famous statements. I'm paraphrasing again, but, um, and, you know, and his dying words on his deathbed are in trail saying, you know, that they, that prayer that they would come back and the church would be reunited. So wow. again and again, Lloyd and Selwyn, they had such a heart for Māori and his prayer at St. Paul's in his final farewell service was that again, things could be reconciled and St. Paul's could be a place where like it was when he first arrived, Pakiha and Māori could join together and be a, a combined congregation in one church. So yeah, so it's it's all in, it's all in there. I think it's a history that really needs redeeming, um, and I think it can be overly simplistic to say, ah, oh, Anglican Church, Vice Regal's Church, the Garrison. Oh, it's it, they're the baddie church. You know, they've got all these symbols and and, and memorials in their church that that revere revere you know the Europeans. But what mm. does need to be said is that. I think this history does need to be redeemed and um there aren't any you know we have memorials in st paul's to the pro-cathedral elements the vice regal elements the church of the garrison elements but nothing to maori at all mm. but fortunately um that is changing and mm. there are quite a lot of moves today um to to try and rec reconcile particularly with nazi fatwa um yeah but that, that's 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 a current ongoing process that's very much underway in st paul's at the moment yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I'm, I'm reminded of um, two contemporaries of both uh, Lloyd and uh, Selwyn um, at the time who, I mean, like these two men, weren't actually thinking about necessarily the groupthink or the tribalism of their the ideologies of their time, but were more seeking the lordship of Christ and how that informs, you know, some, you know what your outworking of your faith is, something more transcendent, right? I'm reminded of... Um, uh, Henede Taratoa, um, who was the leader of uh, Naitangi, and he was actually named after Henry Williams as well. Um, but, you know, Henede Taratoa actually travelled extensively with Bishop Selwyn, um, yeah. and he introduced British law to Māori districts. He helped write a Christian code of conduct for war uh, with alongside with the Crown, and he was actually mm. a negotiator with the Crown and Te Kingitanga. Um, perhaps he actually even caused less casualties by his actions of uh, his negotiations. Um, mm. I'm also reminded of um, Wudamu Tamihana, who was the Nati uh, Hoa leader, um, and he particularly established Te Kingitanga uh, with one other iwi, convinced, and he convinced the first king to actually assume the role, uh, Te Whero Whero, Whero Whero. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, like um, similarly, uh, like he established um, Te Tapari Pa, Ne Matamata, oh, Matamata, sorry, 
based on the Ten Commandments. Like he was actually a guy motivated by, yep, the gospel, yep, um, the Bible, you know, a Christian outworking orthopraxis of actually how we're going to do life is important. Um, yep. But also like a, a product of his times, you know, not unlike a Selwyn. Um, his diplomacy meant um, him and a confederacy of chiefs actually said, well, we're not going to swear allegiance to the queen. And, you know, that aggravated and escalated conflict uh, with the British forces, you know, and we could argue yeah. whether that was justified or not, but obviously there's complexity with on, you know, these four people that we're actually talking about, you know, either sides of the conflict are Christians and they're trying to actually outwork what their Christian faith means, right? Yeah, so, um, yeah. Reminds me of that, um, I, I don't know if you've heard that anecdote of um, uh, the First World War and on like Christmas Day, basically, or Christmas Eve, you know, the two forces, the Germans and the, uh, the uh, Allied forces were apparently singing hymns to each other across uh, no man's yep. land. But then yep. the next day they were like, you know, after the ceasefire, they were firing at each other. War was continuing. Yep. Right? But see the same thing at Gallipoli. Yeah, yeah. Very well, similar. Yep. Yeah, true. Um, just like yeah. it goes to show that, you know, that complexity of our... I, there, there is Christianity to be spoken of and considered on both sides. And it's like, it's, it's easy to just actually, like you say, they're good, they're bad. Um, but yep. history yep. often turns out to be more uh, complex than that. It's not that simple. It's no. not that simple. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, and this is, this is the thing where I think people come unstuck. They, people that don't appreciate how to actually analyze history well, um, uh, jump to quick uh, we live in a society where everyone jumps to quick conclusions based on minimal evidence immediately presented and mm-hmm. you just end up with very bad understandings if you do that you need to do the mahi and mm-hmm. and get, get to grips with some of this stuff mm-hmm. yeah you have been absolutely excellent so far my friend like it's yeah. been oh, thank you Jared. Love, oh, your love your just love the nuance and sophistication you're bringing to each of your points and like you know the justification of your reasoning like uh really really a joy to have you on and i think uh, a lot of people are going to be blessed by uh, and their knowledge with actually around these issues about okay how does this then make me think about some of these dynamics contemporarily in my own context in the 21st century yeah i love that yeah mm. oh, thanks jared no it's a pleasure uh, some of it i feel i'm prepared for because i'm just kind of answering off the top of my head oh, so i'm just gonna stretch my leg um <laughs> But yeah, uh, so I mean, some of this stuff, I uh, like, for example, with Freemasonry, I'll read my chapter on Freemasonry again, just to remind myself, you know, some of this stuff, because it's, it's a little rusty otherwise. Mm, of course, man. Yeah. No, my pleasure. Mm. And we covered the main three, which is like the, the dominant ones that it's famous for that you have in all the stained glass and stuff. The other two are, are less known. So there is a good point. Mm. All yes, right. Well, bless you guys. Good Thank you. Uh, Kate, good again. to see you again, mate. Mm. And Jared, I will see you on... Well, I'll see you on Monday, if not before. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Bless you guys. Thank you. Bless you, bro.